0: Hi everybody, this is Andrew. This week it's just me here at Superhouse. I interviewed a guy named Matt Alt in Japan recently. He is a translator and translation company owner along with his wife He lives in Japan, and he had a lot of interesting things to say about the craft of translation, his past and how he got into Japan, and also we had a little bit of commentary on Japanese fandom in general. We recorded this in a park, so there are some audio issues. You might hear birds and things like that. Please forgive us for that. Let's get started.
1: Matt. My name is Matt Holt and I, uh, I've been living in Japan for the last 13 years. And I run, I co-operate, co-founded and cooperate a translation company. And I uh, act as a reporter on Japanese TV from time to time.
2: What kind of stuff do you translate? Actually?
1: Well, my company, uh, it's called Alt Japan. We specialize in translating entertainment. And what that basically means is video games for the most part. Video games, also uh, comic books, okay. literature packaging for toys and models, all sorts of things like that.
2: And um, did you like video games growing up? Or?
1: Yeah, well, when I was growing up, anime was still very much like a kind of underground phenomenon. There wasn't a lot of it translated, there wasn't a lot of translated manga, and uh, my friends and I really loved what little of it we were able to see, but um, it was very frustrating because we knew there was so much out there that we couldn't get to appreciate. So. Right. I was really lucky in that uh, where I grew up, there was a Japanese program at my public high school, and I took it, and that was kind of the start of this big adventure in, in learning Japanese and, and coming to Japan.
2: So anime was like your, the main thing that you got, got you into Japanese and to be. With, it was cultured.
1: specifically, specifically what got me into Jap- Japan were Japanese toys. Okay. Uh, toys like the merchandise from anime and, and things like that, uh, more specifically robot toys. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, back in the 70s when I was growing up, uh, and, and this was right before the Transformers boom hit, There were a a couple series of Japanese robot toys that came to the States. The Shogun Warriors was a famous one. Okay. Uh, There was another one called Godaiken. Okay. And then when the Transformers fad hit in the early 80s, then boom, all of these Japanese robot toys started coming in. And as a kid, I was just like, wow, these are so awesome.
2: What kind of games do you, have you translated or what? uh, Yeah.
1: I mean, most recently, my company translated the demo for a video game called Neo which is uh, uh, Koei Tecmo is putting it out. It's kind of um, a Dark Souls style game, very violent, where you're fighting uh, yokai and traditional Japanese monsters in this sort of medieval Japanese setting. Very cool game, very, very much an honor to be involved with that. Um, and that's, uh, we've actually, that's not the first game we've done for them. We did a lot of work on the Ninja Gaiden series.
2: Do you feel that um, some, those, those games in the 90s, I know you were probably in college then, but do you think there was a certain charm to them having ing- English in them?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, wh- we all know the most famous example of that is Zero Wing and all your base or belong to us. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, as a kid, I was never angry, but I was always kind of frustrated by how bad the English was in a lot of games. Uh, because I was like, wow, this is such a beautiful experience, and English is so bad. but. You know, then again, sometimes that bad English actually is an asset. Like, for instance, the Biohazard series, Resident Evil. We weren't involved in, in localizing that. I don't think anybody who's a native speaker was involved <laughs> in localizing the early titles of that. But there are some amazing, like weirdly fractured English in there. Like, Jill, you are the master of unlocking, and, and things like that. But it doesn't detract from the fact it's a great game. And in fact, because it's this like B-grade horror movie, based game, it actually almost adds to the flavor. So it's an interesting question.
2: That's, yeah, for me, my experience growing up with those games, the them having bad English was like part of the experience yes. for me. It's so yes. strange.
1: What added this layer of kind of otherness and alienness in in a, in, a, in a kind of charming way, because Japanese people don't break English out of ignorance. They break it, I mean, they have to learn English. But of course, they're not native speakers. So the subtleties are lost if you're not a native speaker. And back in time, nobody realized how important translation and localization was to the marketing process. Like, OK, get Tanaka-kun and, you know, and, and, and level C to translate this whole thing. You know what I mean? Or Just call this, this lady to do it. Like, it was just given out randomly to whoever in the office happened to speak English.
2: Yeah, I, I think that the, the game industry was probably totally different in the 90s yes. as well or before that. Yes. Now it's like the movie industry,
0: basically.
1: Well, now it's like, you know, you won't be taken seriously if your game isn't localized to a certain standard. And we use the word localization. It used to just be known as translation. Even as recently as the early 2000s, when I would say my company's in localization, uh, people wouldn't necessarily understand it. Even in the game industry, I mean, it's only been very recently in the last... I would say 10 years or so, that that's become an established field. It's not so much that we say we have to change that voice because localization always works in concert with like director of the game and, and the people who made the game. Like the people who translate the game don't own the game. It, like they're just working for the people who own the game and that's like a kind of critical thing and it's, it's very rare when somebody in translation or localization has the power to make a unilateral decision. Uh, in, in the case of, of, of a very high pitched, squeaky sounding uh, uh, female character, what often happens is when you go into a recording studio in, in Hollywood or, or Vancouver, or wherever you just choose to, to record it, you can't find somebody who can match that voice in English. English is timbre, its pitch is, is naturally lower. And so what is considered a cute voice or a normal voice in Japanese, you, you can't go one to one because Japanese, like the octaves are just higher. When you speak Japanese, uh, uh, even as a man, your register is just a little bit higher. So, yes, it's part of localization, but I don't think anybody's like, man, I hate this voice. We're gonna change it down. It's just a question of like linguistics, you know? The, I mean, the big difference is that yokai emerged from this polytheistic belief system. Polytheistic meaning that Japanese people believe in many gods. That's the kind of Shinto faith uh, is, a, is a polytheistic religion. And in fact, it's said there are 8 million gods in Japan, which is a figurative number. It's not meant to be taken literally, just that there are gods everywhere. The yokai are kind of part of that pantheon of deities that are out there, and because of that, uh, they're not necessarily bad. Um, maybe you'd say in the Dungeons and Dragons vernacular, they're chaotic neutral, you know, that sort of thing. Um, whereas I think in the West, monsters are generally always seen as being bad or negative or scary or always tricking you. That's not always the case with Japanese yokai. Okay. Yeah.
2: And um, real quick, do you know what do you know about? Have you studied Buddhism or Shintoism at all? Oh uh, well, yeah, a I mean bit of a tangent,
1: but. I, I am I'm s i am no religious expert, but of course in the in the you know s- scope of, of in the course of, of studying this stuff, you can't help but have to read up on certain Buddhist things or certain Shinto aspects and things like that. So, But I, I am no, by no means any kind of religious scholar. And I, I don't think you can, you can, there are certainly a lot of yokai emerged from a Buddhist tradition or a Shinto tradition, but I don't think you can say yokai or Shinto or sh- yokai or Buddhist, I, that's wrong. Uh, they are kind of their own thing. And although of course there's some religious overlap, um, I, they're not associated with any religion.
2: So you say you've been in Japan for how long?
1: I've been living in Japan for 13 years now.
2: And how has it changed since, actually no, you went right after college?
1: No, no, uh, I, I lived in, uh, I spent all of my 20s in the United States. I, uh, uh, I went to school at University of Wisconsin and I returned back to Maryland where I was born and raised. And uh, I spent my 20s there. I didn't move to uh, Tokyo until I was 30. Uh, after I'd gotten married and, and Hiroko and I decided to move out here.
2: You met her in America? I met
1: her in America. Hiroko at the time was going to the University of Maryland, and then she got a master's degree at American University in uh, Washington, D.C. And we met during the course of that, and we started working together and uh, on on translation projects and things like that. She and I have been working together since the days of, of uh, Silhouette Mirage and working designs.
2: What was your Japanese level in, like before you moved here?
1: Oh, I mean, I mean, obviously, I had studied Japanese in high school and I'd studied it in college, and I'd been here. Uh, I'd spent a year abroad here, but it was still pretty rudimentary. Um, Japanese is a very kind of uh, highly contextual language, and I think you really need to come to Japan and you really need to live in this environment for an extended period of time, uh, preferably with somebody who is really going to call you out on your mistakes, uh, because Japanese people do not tend to be confrontational about that. They're, they're like, and, you know, I think that's very nice and polite. You know, if you're in a party setting or, or you know, or uh, hanging out at a friend's house or, you know, relative's house, they're not going to be like, hey, man, that's wrong, you know? Like, they're not going to get your face about it. But the problem with that is that it's tough to know when you're making mistakes. So, uh, you know, I, I was living with Hiroko from day one when we moved out here, and she's always been like, that's wrong, you're saying it wrong, that's the wrong way of looking at it, that's the wrong way of pronouncing it, and that really has helped.
2: The wrong way of looking at it.
1: Well, you know, being an American, it's very easy to try to apply an American mindset to situations you might meet here or something like that. You know, one one good example of that is there are set phrases in Japanese called aisatsu. isatsu, and they're basically these phrases that are used over and over again in in all sorts of situations in daily life. If you see somebody in the hallway at in an office, you'll say, "Oh, some of this," you know, you know, thanks for all your hard work. Uh, There's a phrase which means, you know, uh, thank you for doing me a favor or something like that. And they're kind of intentionally, deliberately vague and used in all sorts of situations. English does not have as many set phrases like this. We have thank you, of course, and things like that, but those are used in pretty specific situations. Japanese Aisatsu is used all the time, everywhere, and from an English-speaker standpoint, at first, you're like, man, what is this? It's like, why do I have to say this meaningless phrase? But then you start to realize it's like a social lubricant. It really does help Conversations get started and going, especially when you don't have anything to say to somebody. You know, have you ever been in a situation where, like, you're in an office and like you've walked past the same guy or gal like three times in a row? Like you're like, hey, you know, the first time, the second time, you're like, hey, and, like the third time, it's just getting kind of weird. Like, what do you say to that person? Like, Aisatsu really helps in Japanese. You always have a set phrase. It's going to be something like this that you can always say it if you run into them a hundred times in the hallway. You know, but I was like, you know, in English, in the English-speaking world, I'm always like, you know, time, the 10th time you run into somebody, you're like, uh, good seeing you the 10th time. You know, like, what are you supposed to say? You know?
2: Did you have any, like, like, people always talk about culture shock, but I actually had language shock mm. when I first started learning Japanese, especially like, the, when the, like your first few days of learning, you find, you find out that the verbs always at the end. Yeah, yeah. And it's like,
1: there's nothing just, in common.
2: It, it keeps coming, like, stuff like that. Yeah, there yeah. are languages that are... That have the verb at the end uh, there's yes. a lot of them but i don't know I, my only exposure to other languages was like french and spanish sure. and stuff like that so to
1: yeah to and it, but, but french and spanish have like gender variations and things that's, like that that didn't
2: weird me out as much uh,
1: interesting because that weirds me out really? i don't speak those languages but when in the course of we sometimes work on localizations into european languages at our company and we don't do them ourselves we work with partner companies and things but that's always been like a real tough thing for me to wrap my head around but You know, as an English speaker learning Japanese, you know, not only do you have male and female versions of words and 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 endings of sentences, you also have politeness levels, multiple politeness levels ranging from somebody below you to somebody very high above you. And English doesn't have those anymore. It used to have those a long time ago, which is why in the Bible you see like these and thous and and turns of phrase like that. In King James's era, these were still used. In ours they aren't. So it can be really tough for a Westerner to figure out, which level of politeness you should use when speaking to somebody, especially if you don't know them. Keigo is, is, or you know polite Japanese, is once you master it, it's really fun. It's like the difference between driving an automatic car and a stick shift. It just gives you so much more fine control over a conversation. And, uh, and now that I use it a lot, I actually miss it in English. Like, if you meet somebody who you really respect and who is much above you in your field or something like that, it's still like, hey, Joe, you know what I mean? hey, Barack, you know, it's just like, it's just, I mean, of course, you would probably call Barack Obama, Mr. President, that's our version of Keigo. But seriously, if you're talking to somebody, uh, there aren't very many ways to vary your English to make it more polite. Uh, In Japanese, there is. And that is actually very useful. Um, Actually, the thing I had a hard time with was learning to take my Japanese down to not a rude, but the lowest level, because when you're talking to kids, if you talk to little kids in polite Japanese, they don't even get it. Because nobody talks to them that way, and they use rough Japanese among themselves because they haven't learned the politeness levels yet. I'm talking like a five-year-old or something like that. So, you know, I wasn't able to connect with little kids until, you know, the parents would say, no, no, you got you got to speak to them using the impolite forms of the verb. And suddenly it all clicked into place.
2: Yeah, it's, it's weird because when you first learn about, like, polite forms and impolite forms, you, you kind of think of, like, English swear words. Yeah. Swear words are bad no matter who says yes. them, and anywhere, but yes. it's really a rank thing. Yeah, yeah, and that's there, it.
1: There aren't many bad words in Japanese. Like, little kids will say the, the equivalent of shit, and, like, you know, I won't, so, and, like, you know, it's, you wouldn't say that in front of your teacher, necessarily, but it's not, like, a bad word. What is bad is using the wrong politeness level to somebody. So calling somebody you by the wrong politeness level is like saying fuck you, which is why a lot of times when people are trying to learn Japanese, they're like, how oh, do I say fuck you in Japanese? And Japanese people don't know how to answer them. They're like, uh, you know, we don't have bad words. They do, but they just don't think about it that way. They're not, you know.
2: Do you still find Japanese difficult?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not my native language. I make mistakes all the time, um, and I'm not a very good student. I don't have a very good memory, terrible memory when it comes to stuff like that. Um, I'm very much more of a jump in and, like, kind of learn it on the fly sort of guy. But, you know, my mission was always to communicate effectively with other people it wasn't to become the best Japanese student in the room or the speak Japanese better than anybody else and especially since I worked together with my wife as a native speaker the need for me to be as perfect as somebody who is kind of operating completely on their own is lessened um, so you know call it a cop-out or call it a cheat but it's just a fact I mean I um, yes it's, it's, a, it's this is not anything that's ever done I'm always going to be learning, you you have to, you know, I I wasn't, I didn't start until I was a teenager, so.
2: What was the hardest part for you? Because for me personally, it was grammar order, like I said earlier. Sure. Wrapping my head around, like, maybe because I'm a logical thinker, I don't know what you call it, but, like, especially in Japanese, the verb is always at the end, so, and that's the most important part in Japanese. Yeah, yeah. So, it's like, it it felt like everything was heavily weighted. Right. At the end, and just to get my head to kind of do that, it's been very tricky over the years.
0: Okay.
1: So, uh, so for example, you know, in English, we spell it out, like, I am going to the store with my girlfriend, you know? But in Japanese, you might just say, iku. Uh, Go store. And that's not a, a fragment. That's a complete thought, uh, grammatically correct sentence in Japanese. Um, uh, very colloquial one, but it's, it's totally correct. And you would, would have to infer based on your knowledge of that person or previous conversations or whatever, who that person is going with or where or when, you can infer all sorts of things from it. Having to infer things from Japanese without a subject is to me still the most difficult thing to struggle with. All right, Yeah. that's interesting. Yeah.
2: Um, Do you have any advice for aspiring translators?
1: Aspiring translators, yeah. I mean, read a lot in your in your native language, write a lot in your native language. Uh, I, I think read, writing ability in the target language in other words, your native language, because uh, you should always be translating into your native language, is definitely by far the key defining feature of a of a good translator. Because uh, I've worked with a lot of people who have like spectacular Japanese uh, credentials. You know, they they went to an Ivy League school, they passed like level one of the Japanese language test. They're great speakers of it, but they, they're just not good translators. Um, they're good at lots of other things, but they're just not good translators because. It's, it's really about your writing ability in your native language. And just like I was saying, with the having to infer things, like it really helps to have a big vocabulary and a lot of different ways of saying things to try to put sentences together in English. This, of course, is more true for entertainment translation and things like that. For technical, it's a little less so, because technical Japanese, of course, has to spell things out more. Otherwise, patents and instruction manuals are going to be missing big chunks of, of context. But uh, yeah, writing ability. Your native writing ability, I think, is something you really need to focus on if you want to become a good translator.
2: What's your favorite thing to translate? Is it games, or is it movies, or is it uh, the toy, like, toy boxes, or? Oh,
1: man. Wow, what's my favorite? I mean, I love translating things that have never been translated before. I mean, as a translator, that's like, you know, setting foot on a mountain that's never been climbed, or uh, or maybe a hill, or even just a little bump in the case of some of these obscure things that we translate. for instance, Hiroko and I, this year, are coming out with a translation of a book called uh, Gazuhyaki Yagyo by, a tra- by an artist named Toriyama Sekien. He wrote it back in 1776, and it's a yokai guide uh, with little explanatory text. Nobody's ever translated into English before, and so Hiroko and I were really relishing the opportunity to get to translate this, these words that nobody has really ever read in English before. And they were written back when George Washington was president. Like, to me, that was, you know, a pretty amazing thing to get to work on. And uh, so the most satisfying things by far are things that wouldn't get translated into English otherwise, or haven't been yet, Okay. you know.
2: And. Um What's your,
1: just going back for a second,
2: getting a little bit more personal, what did your parents say when you said, I'm going to go to Japan, I'm moving there, I'm going to be there for God knows how long? Oh,
1: well, I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I was way more worried about what my grandfather would think. I mean, he fought the Japanese on a battleship in in, in World War II in the Pacific, you know, but he was really cool with it. In fact, he gave uh, my family the money to send me abroad to Japan for a couple week homestay when I was uh, a kid back in high school. And this is back during like the Japan bashing era of the '80s, and he's like, "You got to learn more about him, you know." This whole like, you know, he was looking at it from an economic perspective. I was looking at it I was like, "I just want more Gundam toys, you know. I want more Godzilla toys, <laughs> you know. I want to be able to understand Godzilla in his native language." Um, you know, his native roar, uh, that was how it was for me. Yes, but yes, um, on, a, on a more recent note, obviously my, my parents weren't happy that I was gonna be moving away, but they knew this is kind of my life work and I'd been studying Japanese for a long time. I was moving here with my girlfriend, my, my wife, excuse me, at the time, uh, and, and still now. Uh, so it wasn't like I was just going out into the, into the abyss. Um, and, but it is, that is the toughest thing. That's the toughest thing is being this far away from my family. Yes, but I try I try to get home to the States a couple times a year. Sometimes it's work, sometimes it's just to go home for, like, Christmas or something like that. Okay, you're still in Maryland? Yeah. Okay. That's where I grew up. Yep.
2: I think that, especially our parents' generation, they didn't have any kind of, like... Oh, my God. They didn't have any exposure to, like, Asian culture in general. Yeah. And then once, I think around when Bruce Lee came in, yeah. he was Chinese, but then... And then the Japanese had the bubble. Well, and America mean, also had Shogun. Environment, Shogun yeah. One thing, but then like now you know, Japan's really good at like you said in that thing in the Monster Podcast. You said that the Japanese are really good at storytelling.
1: Yeah, and carrying characters. That
2: that that really stuck with me, and I felt like they, they throw that into <clears> <throat> what they make with a video game, yeah. with the anime, and.
1: Well, there's a word for that. Uh, it, it's called uh, cool. It's called Cool Japan. And basically, you know, now it's a kind of this BS government initiative, but what Cool Japan really comes down to is what's called soft power. You know, you have hard power, military, economic, manufacturing, we're going to flood your market with great cars, you know what I mean? That's hard power, you know what I mean? But a counterpoint to that is soft power, which is basically the ability to win hearts and minds and persuade people. And I don't think Japan was doing it intentionally. They just are very good at, they've, they've had an entertainment industry here since way back in the Edo period, like back in the in the 17th century. So they have a really refined storytelling sense, a really refined idea of visual design, a really refined idea of how to create characters, compelling characters. They've been doing this since the Kabuki era, you know, and hokusai, you know, uh, woodblock prints. And it all is all kind of part of a piece. And I think that, you know, in in creating products for themselves, uh, Japan unintentionally won the hearts and and minds of of people abroad. That is soft power, and that's why people like, you know, you're here, I'm here, I didn't move here because of, I thought the Japanese government was cool or something like that or like, you know, or anything like that, I moved here because I thought Godzilla movies were cool, I thought Gundam was cool, I thought, you know, Sunny Chiba movies were cool, you know? That's soft power
2: it's weird it's like that's probably even more powerful in a way it has more lasting power because what other, especially Asian country, and like, no one, no, one, not many people are moving to other countries as much as
1: here. No, well, it's an interesting question. It's because Japan hasn't really been in the headlines for anything. Japan's this kind of distant land that keeps to itself and is kind of quiet. You know, China is this up-and-coming tiger. Uh, there's a lot of scary stories coming out of China, and, and like, I, China's a great country, but it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's on a very aggressive campa- campaign right now to remake its image and become the dominant power in the world. You know, Korea is at war with itself, you know what I mean? There's a lot of stories coming out of there. Uh, Southeast Asia is still largely developing uh, a, a place of the world. Japan is this weird, I- in the sense of, historically speaking, Asian, alien, faraway land that's still a first world country, and is very well developed, and doesn't have, you know, anything scary going on in it, so you can kind of project your own dreams onto it, you know? and japan i think is very much a canvas it's more of an idea almost to a lot of people than it is a country um and it's the, the reality of it is very different i think than what a lot of like japan fans in the united states have never been here uh think of it and yeah
2: a lot of a lot of people that watch anime a lot sure they might they of course like Japan to a certain degree, but you know, 99% of anime fans aren't moving to Japan. They're no. not learning Japan no. learning Japanese well, really. They know Senpai Kohai. Sure, sure, that's sure. It.
1: And you know, I, I don't think there's any like, you know, just because you, you like anime, you should move to Japan. Like, I don't think that's true at all. I, I you should do what you want with your life. I mean I was I became interested in Japan through anime and things like that, but I actually don't watch that much anime anymore. The 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 the, the kind of the tastes have changed themes have changed, Um, I deeply respect it as an art form, uh, manga too, but like the stuff I grew up on is very different from the stuff that's popular now. That doesn't mean the stuff that's popular now is bad, it's just not my thing. Uh, And so, you know, I think it's really tough to move over here because of pop culture and stay here because of pop culture. I moved, I, I first came here because of pop culture, but then I fell in love with a lot of other aspects of the country and living here and, and working here and the challenge of communicating in a foreign language uh, and and you know being a person who is interested in writing and reading from a very young age, that was just kind of a natural step for me.
2: Do you think there's a lot of disillusionment when people, anime fans or Japanese fans in general come here?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's always a grass is always greener kind of thing and dream versus reality. I, Japan or anywhere else is what you bring to it. You know, if you are coming to Japan because you're running away from something, you're going to be running away from something here too. Um, I didn't move here because I hated America. I didn't move here because I wanted to get away from America. In fact, I love Go I wish I could live in both places at the same time. Um, but I, the, the people who I found here who are the most disillusioned and angry about Japan, I've found are the people who would be disillusioned and angry if they lived in the States, or in France, or Spain, or wherever they lived. Um, you. People try to reinvent themselves by going to far off places, but you can never run away from yourself. You know what I mean? It's all about what you bring to it, what you bring to the table. That's right. Yeah. You know? It's, uh, it's psychology, you know? I mean, Japan is just different, you know, Japan is not a utopia. There's lots of things wrong with Japanese society, just like there's lots of things wrong with American society, or Canadian society, or, you know, South African society, you know? There's all over the world, countries have their own strengths and weaknesses. Japan's peculiar blend of strengths and weaknesses just seem to mesh well with my personality, and that's why I enjoy living here. Um, If I came here with a chip on my shoulder, or, you know, trying to change Japan, you know, maybe I, I would feel differently, but I don't. I go with the flow. Um, you know, I do try to change things my own way, but not because I think I'm right and Japan is wrong, you know it's just, you have to live for who you are and y- you can only change yourself, you can't change the things around you, you can only change the way you react to them, or think about them you know, it's and that's. I mean, I, but I think that's the secret to happiness anywhere, not just in Japan
2: I'm kind of closing down here, sure. but uh, what, uh, can you just kind of go into your TV appearances?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I'm currently the co-host of a show on NHK World called uh, Japanology Plus. Peter Barakon is the main host, and I kind of host a little corner every episode. And I've been doing that for the last three years now. It's been a lot of fun.
2: What? Like, so how did you get contacted for that? Or how translator get on TV like
1: I, this? Well, actually, there's a lot of call for people to go on TV in Japan. Japan has a lot of variety shows and things like that. Japan and Japanese TV in general is, uh, 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 let me me change that. There's a lot of call for people to go on on Japanese TV, especially if you're a foreigner, as a kind of commentator. And uh, if you have the schedule for it and you have the ability to not be afraid of a camera and the ability to articulate to even the bare minimum extent, uh, you definitely have a shot on getting on Japanese TV. Uh, How I landed a a permanent show is because I was interviewed by the show called Begin Japanology. And it went really well. It was an episode focusing on my company and it went really well and Peter Barricon and I really you know, hit it off on that segment. Uh, it's up on YouTube right now. I'll give you a link to it. And they, a couple of months later, asked me was I interested in hosting a little corner uh, of the show. Like it's a 30 minute show and I do like a little five minute segment every episode or almost every episode. And uh, the rest is history. Um, I, uh, you know, I've always kind of had a knack for public speaking and and public performances and stuff like that. So I guess it just happened to be a confluence of, you know, that and knowing Japanese and and uh, having been established here. All right, cool. Yeah.
2: Do you have any questions for me? I know that's kind of weird, but
1: questions for you. What are you doing here? What are you filming these? What are you filming these segments for?
2: I think my my dream or one of my dreams is. To go around the world, not just Japan, but let's start
1: with Japan because I've always been interested in it. Yeah, sure.
2: And I just wanted to, if I could make money doing this, yeah. that would be awesome. <laughs> Making so money doing your dreams. I might as well just start doing it on yeah, my own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going out, coming out of my pocket. Sure, first. sure. That's been kind of my plan. I'm doing this in a Buddhist and Shintoist, yeah, yeah, Shintoism documentary thing. My cut's gotten a lot better since I sent the, the one I sent oh, great, great. I took a lot of ums and stuff.
1: Yeah, it's, it's tough figuring out exactly how to do that. Well, how did you get interested in Japan in the first place?
2: Video games and a short stint of anime. I still well, check in and out of anime sometimes, yeah. but I'm well, like you. It's not a big deal for me anymore. Yeah. Like, my first introduction to anime was on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, before uh, they had like a block of anime, and I was like, "What is this?" And it was all violent stuff. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Akira, Ghost in the Shell. Oh, sure. Um, to me, uh, it was like uh, Vampire Hunter D, Ninja Scroll. Oh, yeah, so that's my, great stuff. So my introduction to anime was this gross, grotesque, yeah, crazy yeah, like, R-rated stuff. Yeah, yeah. And not movies, not shows, but movies. So that's yeah. To this day, those are still like well, my favorite stuff. It's, it's funny.
1: All of those you're talking about come from a very specific. They're all influenced by a style of manga called Gekiga. I don't know if you've heard that word before, but Gekiga is like kind of... They're manga for adults, basically, Uh, and I don't mean that in pornographic sense, but they're just... it it kind of emerged in the the 60s and 70s, and like the line work of people like Otomo, who did Akira, um, very detailed and and very expressive, uh, the kind of sort of pulpy nature of a lot of those things, it, it all owes a lot to that 70s uh, Gekiga style, and unfortunately there, it doesn't, there aren't, manga aren't like that anymore, and so they, anime come from manga. Every, With the exception of Ninja Scroll, I think, which you just mentioned, almost everything you just talked about came from a manga first. There was a Ghost in the Shell manga, there's Akira manga, you know, and uh, the, the manga these days aren't set up to do that kind of thing. They're not, they're not, it's just, the tastes have changed.
2: Yeah, it's like from Pokemon 4 that's been it's been cute stuff, but for me, my, my experience, yeah. I was like, oh, this, I was like 12 or 13, yeah, so I was yeah. like, this is so awesome.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it hit a sweet spot. I mean, for me, the beginning of the end was Evangelion, uh, which I love. It's it's a great series, but that was the kind of first buy-in for otaku anime series, and it established this, this sort of thing where you... I, I think the classic anime from the 70s and 80s were all, like, they were kind of looking abroad and trying to make, okay, Star Wars, this is amazing, well, let's make our own Star Wars, you know what I mean? 2001 A Space Odyssey, or like, you know, The Magnificent Seven, which was actually a remake of a Japanese Kurosawa movie, whatever, but they would, or, you know, a Sam Peckinpah film, you know what I mean? Let's, let, let's I'm going to do my own version of that. Now, manga and anime only look back to manga and anime. So like if you, don't, if you don't understand these kind of like tropes and these stereotypes, it's become this very insular kind of world. It's very tough to break into, even as somebody who knows them. You know, the, the fixed poses, the reference to some famous anime show or some manga thing that happened. That, that didn't used to be the case. Like manga and anime would be consumed by the mainstream. Now they're more and more becoming this niche kind of thing. So yeah. yeah. It's hard
2: to get into. I it think is. It's like a magical girl anime and all that. It's
1: like, these uh, weird. Yeah, and that stuff has a long tradition here. I mean, the magical girl stuff started in the 80s. Um, and, you know, it's interesting stuff. There's just people you can talk to about that, like Patrick Galbraith, for instance, who's teaching at Tokyo University right now about uh, moe uh, and things like that. But, you know, I respect that history and I respect where it comes from. Just not my thing. No, not thing. Yeah, yeah. Let's wait for this. Wave motion engine, just like Yamato.
2: Yeah, that, I, I love that stuff and, and yeah, it was video games and anime and then I just got into the language and I came here in 2004 just to hang out and I heard about teaching English. So, yeah, so I yeah, lived yeah. here from 06 to 09, taught English here the whole time, lived over there yep and then um, moved to LA. I'm from Atlanta originally. Oh, Atlanta,
1: wow. yeah. right. Well,
2: actually I'm from Alabama and then I moved to Atlanta when
1: I was 13. Alabama, you've been in Mobile? Yeah. Yeah, it's more. Mobile? How do you guys pronounce it? Mobile. Mobile. That's where my grandfather's battleship is docked. He was on the USS Alabama. Oh,
2: shit. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay.
1: He took me on a tour of that years ago. It was pretty funny. It's
2: uh, it's cool. Um, but, yeah, it's just been a long journey, man. And like, And just like you, it starts off with these, like, anime and video games and stuff. And then you start to, you know, develop a, a things, you know, a taste for the more cultural things. Sure. just Japanese
1: people in general. Yeah, yeah. It's just... I, mean, I, I could not I don't think I could live here without being with Hiroko, uh, uh, you know my wife. She's a kind of like guide and a, and a teacher in a lot of ways to me in the ways of, of Japanese culture. And it's really tough when you're just doing it alone. It's really tough. Um, and I know a lot of people come here and are very lonely because they don't have a lot of Japanese friends, but I, I'm lucky that I had a lot of hobbies that Japanese people have, like you know model building or like not. Not anime so much but like you know I'm really into like 60s and 70s live action monster shows and things like that there's a lot of people here you can talk to about that gun like if you talk to people about Gundam 70s Gundam it's a huge icebreaker of people who are like 40 50 years old which is you know my age demographic now so um yeah I mean it's like back in the 60s if you moved to Japan you better play in the 70s 80s you better play golf because that was the social lubricant now, anime and, and things like that are. And uh, I'm lucky to have a really uh, close-knit group of uh, good Japanese friends out here. That really helps. Awesome. Yeah. Um.
2: That's basically it. If you don't cool. have any more questions for no,
1: me. No, no. I actually have to get going pretty right, soon. Cool. It's 5.30. But, um, all right, man. Well, thanks, thanks. for having me, man. Thanks for having, yeah. thanks for having me. No, not at all.
0: And that was Matt Ault, everybody. Thanks again for listening. And I wanted to thank Matt Ault himself. He didn't have to do that. And it was really awesome that he did. His company can be found at altjapan.com. That's A-L-T-J-A-P-A-N.com. We are on Twitter at SuperhousePod, and we are on all social media as Superhouse Podcast. Also, you can email us at superhousepodcast at gmail.com. And that is it. Thank you very much, and we will catch you later.